Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined from across the ocean with by Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, who we've interviewed previously for his book, Doctoring Data or Data depending on which way you like to pronounce it. But today we're going to talk about his new book, A Staten Nation, which really goes deep into helping us understand some of the challenges with the conventional approach on this. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Kendrick. No, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it was great to read your book. So you had written three, I think this is your third book, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. yep. And, uh, a previous book that you wrote is The Cholesterol Con, yeah. which I guess more or less uh, addressed the cholesterol controversy. So can you discuss the reasons why you wanted to write this book, A Staten Nation? Well, I think a number of people had said a lot, uh, a lot of things have changed in the last 10 years. So it's 10 years since I wrote this book. It seems ages. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. But... And, uh, so I said, oh, I'll do a bit of an update. Uh, some of the things that have happened as you probably know, there's been a been a number of um, there's new cholesterol-lowering agents that have arrived, which drive low-density lipoprotein even lower than before. So there's quite a few things have changed. A lot of things have stayed the same, but um, I wanted to also add in a bit more information about sort of what you could do to hopefully prevent heart disease as well. Okay, great. Um... Now, I guess before we go there, I'm, you know, I want to give a broader perspective because you know, we, you're, uh, describe yourself as a skeptic, but I think a good skeptic because you know, we have some skeptics who are disputing what we say, but I think you've turned that around. So uh, I guess because of your positions, you've been deleted from Wikipedia just recently, actually. And uh, you want to comment on that at all? Or? Well, uh... I didn't even know I was on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I only found out because someone said, you're about to be deleted. And I went, oh, my. <laughs> this is terrible. Uh, my life has come to an end. Um, I wasn't really bothered about me being deleted, if you like, because these things are what they are. But I think it was more a principle of the thing because it seems that there's a move out there. There, there seem to be people out there whose, whose entire function seems to be to try and just destroy anyone who disagrees with them. So they have a thing called Rational Wiki now, which they're putting up stuff about how idiotic I am and how stupid I am and how I know nothing. And, and I mean, really just some quite personally insulting stuff, which, which doesn't bother me. But, but you do sort of feel that you're caught in a little bit of a maelstrom. I'm, I'm sure you've <laughs> had more than your fair share of this kind of nonsense. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I, I guess you've got uh, two potential possibilities. One is you could not be on the page at all, or otherwise you could be on the page and they can just blast the heck out of you like they do to me and disparage you and discredit you and make everyone believe that you're not worthy of looking at and even worse than that because you're uh, heralding nonsense and misinformation. So in some ways, it's good that you're not on it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that, that, yeah. That, that's... 
Wikipedia is run by the skeptics. I mean, they're an organization that is dedicated to um, helping or really discrediting people who have our types of positions and really focus on natural therapies and point out the flaws and the harm that can come from uh, applying these conventional, many of these conventional approaches uh, like drugs that you're going to talk about in your book, Staten Nation. Yeah, well, I think also in the UK, there's the, the uh, one of the widest read uh, papers, the Mail on Sunday, uh, two weeks ago, had a, had a, a real go at, um, I think you maybe know Zoe Harkerman, Asi Mahot. Oh, sure. Um, saying that we we caused hundreds of thousands of people to stop taking their statins and that we've caused, therefore, thousands of people to die. And also that... Um, you know, there's, I think the headline was there should be a special place in hell for people who um, deny the use of statins. I mean, really quite horrible stuff. But um, uh, it, I, I, in fact, then went and looked up the uh, the data on, on deaths from heart disease. When the article came out, this is some years ago, I didn't write it, by the way. They said I did, but they didn't. So their facts were, as usual, complete nonsense. But um, I then looked up the, the fact that you know, in the year after this article came out that was just supposed to frighten people off taking statins, there was actually a reduction in death rate from um, heart disease of 4.5% compared to the previous year and compared to the year after. So it looked like all that happened was there was a dip in the level of deaths from heart disease, which would kind of counteract their argument, which is all based on modeling nonsense. But um, no, I mean, these people come at you hard and they don't pull their punches. Uh, one of the things that they said to me was, we can find no evidence that you work as a doctor in the United Kingdom uh, or registered as a doctor. And I went, well, if you want to put that in, then uh, that's fine. But I will then sue you because I am a doctor. I work in the UK. And this is just nonsense. So they really don't pull back on it, do they? Uh, as if somehow wow. you know, they have the right, the righteousness behind them. It's really quite appalling. Yeah. Well, they certainly have the uh, revenue stream behind them and backing from the pharmaceutical companies. And uh, they actually, I guess most of their article that they wrote about you was correct. In fact, that uh, they just got the words mixed up a little bit. So that when people, all these people went out went off their statins, instead of hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people dying, you actually saved their lives and the special place in hell should not be reserved for you. It should be reserved for them who not misunderstand who with because of their complete ignorance of this the reality. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and they rely very heavily. Uh, you may or may not know that there is a group in, in the UK in Oxford who call themselves the cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration. They've got all the data or data, as they say in America from the, uh, from the statin trials and they hold it and they won't let anyone else look at it ever. And they keep producing these meta analyses showing how wonderful statins are and that they have no adverse effects. And, and we're supposed to believe them. And although they run a clinical trials unit that last time I looked at, at a, earned a well over $400 million in, uh, in funding from pharmaceutical companies, almost entirely those companies that produce cholesterol lowering agents. So, I mean, we have a completely biased organization paid mm -hmm. hundreds of millions who hold all the data and then tell us, no one else can look at it. And by the way, you should believe everything we say. I mean, how on earth can this be allowed to happen? If it happened in any other area of the world, if it happened in journalism or the legal profession or anywhere, you'd just be laughed at. It would not be allowed. 
And yet somehow these people have got themselves such a standing and status that we're supposed to go, well, you've said it, it must be right. Uh, this is ridiculous. Well, I, I'm not sure that it's just restricted to health or medicine. I think it's really incumbent upon most industries. I'm, you know, I'm writing a book on EMFs and it's certainly prevalent in the wireless telecommunications industry. It was certainly present in the tobacco industry. So it's just this whole process that they go about. And it typically is largely a result of the massive amount of revenues that are created from these products that are backing this. And uh, one of the comments you make in your book is that statins are the most profitable drugs ever created in the history of mankind, grossing more than a trillion. That's a, that's a thousand billion dollars. So why don't you elaborate on that? Because I thought that was an astounding statistic. Well, well, it is an astounding statistic. I mean, um, I'm not entirely sure if my trillion figure is exactly right, but it's not far off. Other people have tried to calculate it. We know that, um, that uh, Lipitor is called in the States a Torvastatin, the Pfizer drug. At its, at its max, it was making up around about $35 billion a year. That's just one statin in one year. And um, a lot of the others have, have made billions. Almost all of them have made billions each year. Torvastatin, Lipitor made the most. And when you look at those amounts of money, that really funds an awful lot of, of marketing, an awful lot of people can be paid very large sums of money to go to attend meetings and run guidelines. When I last looked at the, um, the, 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 the guideline NCEP, National, National Cholesterol Education Panel, when they came out with their latest guidelines saying cholesterol should be lowered even more, um, out of nine met people on a committee, there was 124 conflicts of interest with companies making statins or other cholesterol-lowering agents. So it's, I mean, it's not surprising that we get the answers that we do, is it really? I mean, where, what else do we expect is going to happen? Yeah, precisely. And as I mentioned earlier, you wrote a, the book, which I interviewed you for, it was Doctoring Data. And I think it might be wise to review one of the central concepts of that book, because it's certainly pertinent to this issue, and that is the manipulation of data primarily with respect to the industry confusing absolute and relative risk, or not maybe confusing it, but using it to their advantage in two ways. When uh, they use it to uh, increase the perception of benefit, and then they, when they we're looking at trying to market that and convince physicians and patients to take the drugs, and they use the other version to decrease the perception of risk and side effects. So why don't you review that? Because it's fascinating. Oh yeah, well, it's, uh, you'd think there would be some way of, of saying there, there's one way to present the benefits of a drug or an intervention, and it's going to be the same, and it can be measured, and it means something. But what, what they've managed to do, um, in fact, I asked, I've asked about 50 medical colleagues this question, what's the difference between absolute and relative risk? and none of them have given me the correct answer. So um, that's a sort of worrying thing. When people go to their doctors, they expect their doctor to tell them what the benefits are, and the doctors don't understand the benefits themselves, which is true of all sorts of areas like screening, etc. But the difference, uh, I try to explain this as simply as possible, but it, it, and, and, and someone said the difference between absolute and relative risk is the difference between uh, multiplication and addition. So if you say you've got 100 people, just use that as 100 people. 
and started them on a, a, a medication, say, say a blood pressure lowering tablet or a placebo. So 100 people on a blood pressure lower, 100 people on a placebo. You run the trial, we'll call it for a year, at the end of which one person died in the treatment arm and two people died in the placebo arm. So what you have there is a difference in deaths between one and two. So that's a 50% difference. But the absolute risk is that 98 people were still alive in the, in the treatment arm, in the placebo arm, 99 people were alive in the treatment arm. That's a 1% difference. So the absolute difference is 1%. The relative difference is between one and two. That's 50%. I think, I think I'm making that clear. Mm -hmm. But if you run the experiment and end it with 1,000 people instead of 100 people, and at the end of the, the, the trial, you get the same result. That's one person died in the treatment arm and two people died in the placebo arm. Then you have a difference, still a relative difference of one and two is 50% between one and two. But in the absolute difference is between 999 and 998. And that is 0.1%. You can keep running these figures. The relative risks can look incredibly impressive. So there can be a 50% reduction in something, relative reduction, but the absolute reduction could be 0.00000001 or 0.00000002. So what the industry has recognized is that people see these figures like a 36% difference in a heart attack rate. And the other thing that they do is they also, they don't even mention like overall mortality. So they will say the difference in heart attack rates there's a very famous advert for Lipitor saying a 36% reduction in heart attacks. And when you examine the figures, the differences were, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was 1.1% absolute risk in the heart attack rate. But then you ask the next question is, what was the difference in death rate? Well, the mm -hmm. actual- the most, the most important question. Well, 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 of course it's the most important question because you don't take a, a drug just to die of one thing and not die of another thing. Like I, I use the example of if you push people off cliffs, then 100% of them will avoid dying from heart disease. So you, you could say I could reduce the risk of dying of heart disease to 0% by pushing people off cliffs. You may not think this is a good intervention, but this thing of the overall mortality is the key important thing. Because there's another thing, you can only die of one thing. So if people die more of of liver cancer or, or kidney failure or muscle breakdown. Um, we see this happening when people discuss the new medications. The Repata is a new lipid-lowering medication. And it was presented as being absolutely fantastic and reducing the rate of heart disease, death, and myocardial infarction by 20%. When you looked at the absolute figures for, for death, were more people died on the Repata than there were on the placebo. More people died, and more people died of heart disease as well. Yet this was presented as if it was a fantastic success. So we have a drug that, that, that you give to people, it's enormously expensive, and more people will be dead if they take it than if they don't take it. And this is yet the pharmaceutical industry manages to present this as a resounding, outstanding success. It's quite extraordinary. Yes, and the the uh, Repatha is a, I believe, a, a drug in the PSCK9 category, and I, isn't it thousands of dollars a month? Um, I don't know what it is in the states, so I think it, 
the last time I looked, it was fourteen thousand dollars a month. Or no, that's no fourteen thousand dollars a year. That's right. Yeah. So it's um, over a thousand dollars a month. Well, it's over a thousand dollars a month, and they're trying to promote this. They're doing it in the UK as well. Obviously, they're doing the usual marketing thing of saying we well, should we need to treat people who've got familiar hypercholesterolemia because these are the people at greatest risk, and there's only one in two hundred and fifty people who've got this or whatever figure they come up with. So it looks like, oh, that's quite a small target. But th this is what they always do. Because initially when, when the cholesterol guidelines came along, a high cholesterol was, and you use different figures in the States, um, it's 7.5 millimoles in Europe. And that would be approximately 300 and a bit uh, milli milligrams per deciliter in the States. That was what was considered high. They then realized, well, we can't have that figure because there's not very many people who've got a a level that high so they had a meeting and they brought down the level of what they called normal to 200 just like that not based on any evidence whatsoever uh, and of course what you find is that um, the vast majority of the population have, have, a, have an LDL cholesterol level higher than that so at a stroke we've turned the majority of people in the world into having a disease that needs to be given a drug needs to be given for the rest of their lives uh, this is just, you know, this is, how could it possibly be? Uh, I looked at the figures in the UK and um, in one population group, 82% of people have a cholesterol level, which is higher than that, which is considered average. And, and, and of course, the other thing that's happened is there is no normal level of cholesterol anymore. There is no average. There used to be, but there isn't anymore. If you look at anything, there is there's raised cholesterol or raised LDL, there's optimal, but there's no lower limit. It's gone. So we've reached the point whereby any level of cholesterol is now considered to be too high. And at any level, it can benefit from being lowered, which is completely bonkers. But this is where we've reached. And yeah, and nobody, in, it seems as we're just willing to accept that this is, this is okay. This is fine. Everybody's got a high level of something which is essential to their physiology. It, it's completely bonkers. Yes, it is indeed. And uh, I just want to mention here that if you and others are successful in helping people understand the dangers of these statins, and eventually most people stop them, that it's important to realize that this other drug you mentioned, Repatha, uh, is in the P, uh, PSCK9 category. And that's just a whole category, just like statin, just like there's loads of drugs within the statin category there's loads of drugs or there will be loads of drugs in, in the psck9 category so what's true of repatha it's probably going to probably be true for most of the other ones are going to increase the mortality rate but i want to get back to uh the cholesterol level because you really touched on a question which i think i'd like you to expand on which is what do you believe to be the ideal optimal normal healthy cholesterol level in, in, in milligrams or de milligrams per deciliter. <laughs> I'll have to do a conversion of 38.72 or whatever it is in my head. Uh, the normal healthy, well, we'll talk about total cholesterol level because then you yeah. start to the subsections and subsections of subsection. The normal healthy level is, is um, I do say to people, I'm going to change this slightly and say to you, when people say to me, oh, my cholesterol is high, you're not worried about your height. So I say anyone who's between about uh, four foot eight and six foot 10 is okay. Start to, move, <laughs> start to move out of that and you, 
you bump your head too many times when you're that tall. So what's a normal, uh, healthy cholesterol level is probably almost whatever you've got. I'm not worried about it. I know what my cholesterol level is, uh, is 300. Right. Um, I didn't want it to be checked, but they did it by mistake when I went to the GPs. They said, oh, your cholesterol level is 300. And I went, fine. It's not quite high enough. I'd like it a little bit higher. Because one of the things that we, I mean, I wrote a paper with a few other doctors where we looked at the cholesterol levels and death rate in, in populations. And what we found is that once you reach the age of about 55 to 60-ish, those people with higher cholesterol levels live longer than people with lower cholesterol levels. It's not a huge, it's not a gigantic difference, but it exists. So essentially, and that's true even, people have got familiar hypercholesterolemia. There's a small subgroup of people with familiar hypercholesterolemia who die young. And we wrote a paper on that demonstrating that it's nothing to do with the cholesterol or LDL level. It's to do with blood clotting factors. The two things are closely related on your genome. Some people get both, some people get one. And if you have the clotting factor problem is the major thing. Interesting. But, so they're, they, have, they have increased clotting risk? Um, very much so. Um, well, not all do, but some do. Uh, moving in a, in a genetic argument, um, what you can find is you can have two you can have siblings, one of whom has the, the, the hypercholesterolemia, the other one does not, all right? Um, but they both have the clotting factor abnormality and then they both have the same risk of dying of heart disease. It, because the actual, the, the LDL receptor itself, the thing that takes LDL out of the system, also takes factor eight out of the system as well. So if you have less LDL receptors, you will have higher levels of clotting factors. And, and so the thing that is probably damaging in familiar hypercholesterolemia in some people is not the high LDL or the high cholesterol level. It's the fact that the clotting factors are not being taken out by the receptors. So, you know, everything in the body does more than one thing, as you know. Everything is hyper complicated. But essentially, people have been, weird, well, not weirdly, they've been deliberately looking at the wrong thing. So when you get young people who die, say, age about 35, Without, with high LDL, familiar hypercholesterolemia, they're very different people than the other groups who can live as long. In fact, if you have familiar hypercholesterolemia, and even some of the strongest supporters of the whole cholesterol hypothesis have, have noted that you will live just as long as anybody else. This is not something that reduces your life expectancy. And yet we are made to be terrified of it. It's completely insane. That is fascinating and in fact, Familial hypercholesterolemia has really been the only medical justification, in my view, to put people on uh, hyper, hypolipidemic agents like statins. Um, so, and I had never heard that before, maybe heard it and forgot, but, you know, just to give an, the audience a, an idea of how common this is, it's less than one in a thousand. Most physicians will only see one or two patients in their lifetime, or may, certainly less than 10 if they have a general practice. Mm. And uh, so... If, if, if a person has this or a physician is monitoring someone, what uh, is the specific uh, clinical test they can check to see if this anomaly exists? Well, there's nothing standard because this is not widely accepted. But um, I was speaking to, well, in fact, on my blog and someone contacted me and they said that they had familiar hypercholesterolemia. Uh, their blood, uh, their LDL level was... Um, 700, no, 800 on average, wow. right? 
Um, and they were being investigated because it's had this for such a long time. And they could find no evidence of any heart disease in this individual whatsoever. He's 72. <laughs> They've done a paper on him. And they, of course, the conclusion is he must be being protected by something because look how high his LDL level is. I, I speak to many people, communicate with me quite regularly saying, my LDL level or my total cholesterol level is six, seven, eight hundred. Uh, one lady came up to me after I'd given a talk. She said, my, 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 um, my total cholesterol level is 800. She's 93. All right. <laughs> um, a, a friend of my mother has got a total cholesterol level of 600. She's 86. She has no heart disease. She's completely healthy. So you can find example after example. Now, uh, I think it's Karl Popper from his uh, views on science says, um, you know, if your hypothesis is that all swans are white, finding another white swan proves very little. Find a black swan, your hypothesis is dead. I know of at least directly of at least 50, more than 50 people who I've communicated with who've got cholesterol levels that are three to four times the normal. Their LDL levels can be five to six times the normal with no discernible heart disease. And some of them are very elderly indeed. And so therefore you've got to say is, well, how can this, how can this be? And, and if you look at all the other data that comes from around the world, there was researchers in, in Norway who contacted me. They'd done a study called Hunt 2, where they looked at 50,000 people over a period of 10 years, looked at their cholesterol levels and their rate of death, um, ischemic heart disease death. And what they found was that basically for women, as their cholesterol level went up, the risk of death went down. And we're not talking a small amount here. We're talking 40% reduced risk of death from ischemic heart disease. So women who had LDL levels of 300, 350, 400 were 40% less likely to die from ischemic heart disease as women who had an LDL level, a uh, cholesterol level of 200 or less. And there was an enormous study done in Austria on hundreds of thousands of people. But what they found was exactly the same thing. And this was all ages, ages 15 to 95. If your cholesterol level was lower, you were more likely to die younger. Now, the difference wasn't enormous, but it existed. And the only population where they didn't find that was in younger men. And in younger men, there was a very slight increase in cardiovascular death in people with, in those with higher cholesterol levels. That disappeared around the age of 50. In women at all ages, you would live longer if your cholesterol level was higher. And I can, I can, you know, the, the, the weird thing is I can get these studies from around the world. There's a, there's a, there's a group in Japan have looked at this, and there's a, a study I can't remember what it's called, Ishikara, I think, but where they looked at women, and, and in Japan they have a very low rate of heart disease anyway, but they found that this is a population of 12,000 women, and they had a heart, uh, a total cholesterol level of over 300, and over a 12-year period, not one of them died from ischemic heart disease, not one. So when people say to me, a raised cholesterol causes heart disease, I say, well, the, the evidence just doesn't say this. And um, I don't know if you know Zoe Harkham, she's another researcher. She took all the countries in the world that, that measure such things, the World Health Organization, and did a graph of the cholesterol level and the rate of cardiovascular death in 186, or however many countries she could find, I think it was about 160. And basically, in all of these countries, you drew the line, and as the as the uh, cholesterol went up, the rate of heart disease went down. So, when people say 
the that it's been proven that cholesterol causes heart disease. Well, it, you know, there's so much evidence that says that it does not. And even the Framingham study itself, which I presume everybody knows about, Framingham near Boston, which is the one that started the whole thing off. What they found was that over uh, a 32 year period, if memory serves, the most dangerous thing that could happen to you was that your cholesterol level started to fall. So when they took it at the beginning of the study and then they measured it over the years and then after about 14 years, if memory serves for, a, for about a 10% reduction in, in, your, in your cholesterol level, the risk of cardiovascular death went up 500%. That's a relative risk, not an absolute risk, but it's still pretty gigantic. So even the Framingham study itself contradicts itself. And they said that for every 1% fall in LDL or cholesterol, there's a 2% fall in cardiovascular death. That figure doesn't exist from anywhere. Where does it come from? It's just been made up and it's widely quoted everywhere. You will read that everywhere. And you say, where did it come from? It's just made up. People believe things that they don't exist. The facts don't exist. It's, they're not supported. I just find it's like, you do find yourself thinking, am I the only person in the world? <laughs> have I gone mad? Am I looking at everything upside down? You know? well, well, you've got a trillion dollar, approximately a trillion dollars in revenues perpetuating this myth. So uh, interestingly, you've got f not one, not two, not 10, but 50 black swans, which just prove this myth. And uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us, now what's, what's even more remarkable about those 50 black swans is that they somehow managed to get to an elderly age and not be convinced by their physician to go on a statin drug <laughs> or another agent to lower their cholesterol. That's even more remarkable. I don't know how they escaped that, but they did, which is really interesting. But had they been placed on a statin drug, tell us how they would have died prematurely. Well, the statin drugs, I mean, they're not... My problem with them is they, they cause quite a lot of adverse effects in a lot of people that are usually dismissed. So people say, oh, I've got aching muscles or I've got aching joints or my memory's gone a bit fuzzy or I've become impotent or whatever. And the doctor just says, well, what do you expect? You're getting older, especially to men um, and to women. But the problem that I have with the drugs is that, I mean, you're dealing with a really fundamental process of the human body, making cholesterol. It's a, 37 or 39 step process or whatever it is and you're you're, you're hacking it off at, if you like the base of the tree and the tree doesn't just make cholesterol it makes another 10 or 15 important important things for your body like coenzyme q10 which is as you know it's um it's used by the mitochondria to create atp which is the energy um basically is your is your energy in your body if you get rid of atp you die well, well, they knew, the pharmaceutical companies knew when they first started looking at statins that it reduced coenzyme Q10 by 40 to 50%. And at one time they had a patent, which was going to be, we're going, if you're going to give someone statins, you have to give them coenzyme Q10 at the same time. Otherwise you might suffer all these unpleasant effects. Well, they decided not to go ahead with that patent. I think for obvious reasons, if you put the antidote to your drug in with your drug, people might think maybe this isn't so wonderful after all. So the whole coenzyme Q10 thing is there, which is coenzyme Q10 is essential for your body and it's essential for energy. And there's a, a number of people and, and um, one of the rather, I think the most worrying thing is the statistics for heart failure have really started to rise and go through the roof. And yet 
uh, people are not looking at this in association with statins, but your heart's a muscle. Your heart needs coenzyme Q10. Statins not coenzyme Q10 on the head. People are getting heart failure. Why is this not being picked up? Another really worrying side effect, well, it's not a side effect, an adverse effect that has been picked up. The Welfare Health Organization first noted this was uh, was an association with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which in America is known as Lou Gehrig's disease, I think. And it's, it's, it's a really horrible motor neuron disease. And more recently, uh, and I blogged about this about early last year, it was found that the statins were, were, were associated, taking statins was associated with, with a, uh, in some cases, a 20,000% increase in the risk. 20,000%. Um, now, it's not a very common condition, and it's not a notifiable disease. And if people aren't looking for the association, I mean, just yesterday I had someone write to me saying that their, their, their father took statins, he developed amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, he's now dead. Did I think there was an association? And, and you, like me, have this frustration of going, well, in an individual case, I can't say this is true. All I can say is I know it increases risk. Did it cause it in your father's case? I can't say that because I can't. I have to say, I don't know. And I know it will never stand up in court. No, but no. you know, the, these are these are major, major problems. And, and you know, our bodies need cholesterol, our neurons need cholesterol, our brain synthesizes cholesterol in, in, in cells, specific cells that put it into your myelin sheaths, which which are the things that protect the neurons. And and without it, you know, who knows what's going to happen. There's definitely an increase in Parkinson's disease and other neurological conditions. That's been shown in several studies. It's been dismissed. I know it's been just anger dismissed. In fact, you'll read articles saying statins protect against Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis. But that's based on the, the nonsense thing that in the past, people with higher cholesterol levels were given statins. People with higher cholesterol levels are less likely to get Parkinson's, less likely to get multiple sclerosis, less likely to get neuro neurodegenerative conditions. So what you do is you get a group of people who are less likely to get a neurological condition, give them a statins, and they say, well, the statins stop them getting a neurological condition. This is the, the opposite of science. This is utterly nonsensical. And, and this is where I'm really worried is that people are getting serious, particularly neurological problems from statins. And it's just being dismissed. And in fact, people are now, there was, they're trying to set up a clinical trial to give people with multiple sclerosis statins. This is just not going to end well. And I think that might have been dropped. But, but, you know, we have some really serious problems with statins and they are being just wept under the carpet. You, you, you may be aware of the study that was done in the, in the UK saying all statin adverse effects are what they call a like nocebo effect. The <laughs> nocebo effect is you think it's going to do you good and it does. A nocebo effect is you think it's going to cause harm and it, and it does. So when someone says I'm getting muscle pain, they go, oh, that's just because you thought you were going to get muscle pain. I mean, you could use this for all drugs and then say, well, actually, there's no such thing as an adverse effect of any drug. You're just making it up in your head. And this is just utterly ridiculous. And the study itself, well, I, I haven't written about it. I did, I did have a look at it. But I mean, what can you say? I mean, there's a lot of the stats, and they say, well, you can only look at the evidence from the clinical trials. Well, a lot of the statin trials had what they call uh, lead-in periods where in one case in the heart protection study, they removed 36% of people from the study in a month of the lead-in period. So 
and they haven't said why. They said, oh, it's because of people that couldn't maybe take the drug. Well, yeah, well, you know, the other explanation is anyone who was looked like they were going to suffer from an adverse effect was removed from the trial. Uh, we can't find that out because the organization, the cholesterol treatment, cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration won't let anyone see that data. And in fact, the last time I said it to them, they said, oh, we don't, we never even had that data in the first place. And yet they've written papers saying statins have no adverse effects. Well, how did you manage that if you don't have the data? I mean, it, it, it's like it's, it's like having a little naughty boy, you know, there's a broken window, and you say, did you did you did you throw the ball through me? No, no, it wasn't me. Nope. I, no, 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 no. But look, you're here. There's a hole in the window. I saw you throwing a ball. You must have broken it. Was, oh no, no, thank you. And it it, it is constantly frustrating. I I have to bite my tongue at times and just not tell them what I really think about them because, well, I would probably, probably uh, end up getting a libel case against me, but sure. it, I mean, you probably have the same thing. You just think, how can you people get away with saying this stuff, which is just monumentally ridiculous, beyond monumentally ridiculous. Yeah. Well, it all goes back to the income, but there, there is a, a, a concept called pleiotropy, which means that uh, a drug or an intervention can have multiple, multiple effects, not just the primary one. And physicians typically prescribe statins to lower cholesterol. And you've provided some very compelling evidence that lowering cholesterol does not decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease or, more importantly, death. So, uh, but there have been some observations that prescribing statins do seem to be providing some benefit, not related to cholesterol. So some people believe it may reduce inflammation and you have a speculation in your book that it may be due to increasing nitric oxide. And I have another uh, possible thesis on this, but I'll discuss that after you share with us your insights on the connection between statins and nitric oxide increase. Well, yeah, uh, as you say, quite rightly, I mean, one of the arguments I use, I've never had an answer to, is that um, no study ever has a raised cholesterol level been seen to be associated with an increased risk of stroke. You say this to people, they look at you as though you're mad, but this is the truth. But if you give a statin, it does reduce the risk of stroke, a small amount, but it's, it exists as a, as, a, as a finding. So you say to people, well, if a raised cholesterol doesn't cause stroke and you lower cholesterol and you lower the risk of stroke, how does that work? Well, well it can't work. So something else is obviously going on. And that's something else that's going on, in my opinion. Now, statins, the pleiotropic effect, as you say, statins do all sorts of things. In fact, whatever you look at them, they do something. But one of the important things that they do, in my opinion, the most important is that they increase nitric oxide synthesis in the endothelial cells, which, as you know, both um, is an anticoagulant effect because nitric oxide is a strong anticoagulant. It causes vasodilation. It increases the health of the endothelial cells. And it also stimulates the production of new endothelial cells in the bone marrow. Um, and I think that, that that on its own could explain any benefits you see from statins. Because when you look at the clinical trials as well, the benefits of statins are seen almost immediately, like after a week, two weeks. And then the kind of plateaus out. We said, well, if it was to do with lowering cholesterol and stopping plaques from forming, it should surely take years to see any benefit, which was the, actually the, when the first study came out. The 4S study was the first of the major studies to come out. Interestingly, it showed no benefit whatsoever for 18 months. The two lines with placebo and statin were locked together, then suddenly they split apart at 18 months. 
which in and of itself is something that you have to look at a bit of sans, askance and say, mm, that's interesting. But I, I do think if there is benefit there, it's, it's from nitric oxide. Because as you know, there's other agents that can raise your nitric oxide level. Sure. ACE inhibitors are blood pressure lowerers, which have a benefit on cardiovascular disease that seems to be completely unrelated to their effect on, on blood pressure. Whereas yeah. you can get other agents that can lower blood pressure by as much or more, which can actually increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. So they, there is something else going on with all these medications. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but uh, I was just going to say the other agents could be natural agents like uh, arginine or citrulline, yeah. yes. fermented beets, which are sorts of nitrate that the, the microbiome converts. But I'm wondering if you're aware of the mechanism that the statins impair or actually increase nitric oxide production. And is it in the endothelial nitric oxide or is it uh, inducible nitric oxide, INOS? And you know, what enzyme are they uh, facilitating or, or augmenting? All right, well, it, it appears to be associated with the, actually here, the, the renin angiotensin system. Um, ah, interesting. Because if you, if you trigger off um, the, you know, the renin angiotensin system is the way of raising your blood pressure that the uh, that the body has if if if, if you, you lose um, fluid, so it there's a series of complicated mechanisms. But the renal angiotensin system is quite damaging, and I think it's the enos effect that it has because that's causing um, blood vessels to constrict in order to push the blood pressure up, and um, and if you interfere with that process, um, then then that's a problem. And what um, and that that's uh, that's um, mediated through. A, an enzyme called bradykinin, and what um, what um, statins do is they actually up upregulate bradykinin or downregulate bradykinin. I'm sorry, <laughs> I need to have it in front of me to remember these things. But it's through the bradykinin effect on inhibiting the angiotensin effects on the cardiovascular system. Sorry, it's getting a bit technical, but that that I believe is how it works. Yeah, I'm sorry to pest you for some of the details, but it is a very intriguing concept and one that's not commonly promoted. So thank you for explaining that. And I want to run my theory past you and get your thoughts on it. Um, as you mentioned, we all know statins are designed to lower cholesterol. And they do that by inhibiting an enzyme in the liver, HMG coenzyme A reductase, which is responsible for making cholesterol, which converts to a lot of almost all of your steroid hormones, including vitamin D. So that has problems and also CoQ10. But um, if you're, it, it, as you said, it's going to lower the cholesterol production in the body. And one of the things that your body uses in addition um, to this enzyme to making these fatty acids is a, another coenzyme called NADPH, which is in the family of NAD coenzymes. And NADPH is, is just crucial for your body. It's essentially the battery... Of your, of your body, stores uh, electrons and serves as a reservoir to recharge your antioxidant system. It's like glutathione. I mean, once you utilize glutathione once, it's dead unless you recharge it, and NADPH is what recharges it. So if you're lowering cholesterol, which is not good, but one of the artifacts of that may be you actually increase NADPH, which is, which is good. So you, it may counteract some of the benefits, and I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, it the thing I do know is the more I look at this area, the more I think, because it's all so complicated. Yeah. Yes. You think, how on earth could all of this ever ever got together and work? But um, I would say that I wouldn't, I, I, 
a bit like yourself. You've got to look at something and say, is this likely? That's likely. Could it, could it be the cause? Could be the cause. It's very difficult to isolate out when you've got so many things going on. But definitely, I mean, NADPH, I do remember from, is that my crib cycle or is that another cycle? Just no, that, you know, it's just recently gotten a lot of notoriety. It's been around, the, we've been aware of it for 70 years, but since this massive increase in longevity and discover is sirtuins and NAD is a substrate for that. And, you know, there's been a lot of increased interest in that and the recognition that NADPH has a lot of other roles. It's, it's primarily used in the body for the biggest consumer is fatty acid synthesis yeah. and cl cholesterol is a subset of that. So it is just massively important and, and probably almost every bit as important in NAD plus, which gets a lot of press. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think that, that when you ask things like this, I was, I like to say, keep an open mind because yeah. goodness knows what I do know is what I believe I know for certain is the, the cholesterol lowering effect of the statins is an unfortunate side effect. It's the other things that they might do. But the problem is over time, as you know, you, you block all these systems, the body starts to find ways around them. You get, and you can get damaged. Uh, you know, the body doesn't produce cholesterol for fun. It's absolutely an essential, absolutely essential part of how we operate. So anything, any of the, the secondary effects like any DPH or nitric oxide, they could be beneficial by accident. I mean, a lot of drugs, as you know, have been discovered. I mean, aspirin itself was, was an anti-inflammatory and painkiller, and then it was found to reduce the risk of heart disease, although that's now questioned. And now it's being used to, to pr protect against cancer. So all drugs, when you start looking at them, you think, oh, crikey, I never realized it did that. Oh, blimey, I never realized it did that. But I suppose that the central question here is, could it be something else? Could it be a pleiotropic effect? Well, I believe that it must be. I'm not... I wouldn't say I'm going to, you know, battle you to death over saying which pleiotropic effect is more yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I just. I don't, I don't really, you know, I'm not bothered in if you like. Uh, yeah. But, but the whole nitric oxide thing is of interest to me. It's a, an area that I think. So the, 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 the bottom line is there may be some other pleiotropic benefit for taking statin unrelated at all to lowering cholesterol but it's an expensive and dangerous way to get those benefits when you can easily achieve it. And which isn't, I've got another softball question for you about a study which was published last week, which I'm sure you heard of. But before I get there, you know, the heart disease, at least currently is the number one cause of death in the Western cultures. So it, it's a big issue. And uh, that's why this is so important because, you know, it, you know, the, it's, it's a, per, it's an absolutely perfect model for these types of drugs because they do nothing to, to decrease. And it's a lifelong prescription, but it's interesting. Uh, I'm interviewing Chris uh, uh, Noby who wrote a book on age related macular degeneration. And he did an extensive review of all the textbook medical textbooks over the last hundred years and, and was able to document really precisely that prior to about 1930, age-related macular degeneration didn't exist. We think it has been around forever. And he was able to nail it. And this is an important tangent. He was able to nail it down to the introduction of processed foods. And that when you eliminate the processed foods or the cause, it tends to disappear. And I think similarly, we, you know, 1900 heart disease was an anomaly. It was a rare event. Now we have an epidemic. Half the people are dying from it. So, you know, it's, the answer certainly isn't a magic pill, and it's not a magic supplement. Is it looking at the diet, the foundational issue of correcting this thing, correcting the the 
the reason why people are dropping like flies from heart disease. It's not because of cholesterol, it's because of these other issues. Well, I mean, absolutely. Uh, in fact, one of the interesting things about macular degeneration, I know it's going to go off on a slight tangent because I was looking at um, the use of Avastin, uh, which is used for macular degeneration, which, as you know, is a vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitor. Um, but interestingly, if you use that treatment, the vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitor, it, it destroys nitric oxide synthesis in, uh, in, in the endothelium and enormously increases the risk of dying of heart disease. Um, in fact, I've just been, been looking at this area and um, over a two year period, if you use uh, Avastin, um, and that's for cancer treatment, not for macular mm -hmm. degeneration, it can increase your risk of um, dying of heart disease by uh, up to twelve hundred percent. But don't um, they don't they use the Avastin uh, for age-related macular degeneration uh, in, yeah. in small amounts in the in the back of the eye? I don't know how they get it there, yeah. but well, they do. Well, they inject it into your eye, which yeah. never sounds like a lovely thing to do. Um, but even when you do that, if you then well, they've done that. They, they did the experiment in rabbits where they injected it in the eye, then they looked at nitric oxide synthesis around the body. And it reduced it by about wow. 70% in most organs. Wow. That's so it crazy. It really knocks it on the head. So, um, so again, you, you wind all these things around and everything becomes associated with, with everything else, doesn't it? Um, so the whole concept of, of, of what's going on in the body and what we're actually achieving is, um, yeah, stay, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's about healthy things of exercise, sunshine. Mm-hmm. The basics. The basics. Uh, maybe one or two supplements, a bit of vitamin D, C, uh, here or there, to, to make sure that you're giving your body all the all the all the nutrients it needs. Because I think we've mangled them, haven't we? We've stripped them out of food um, with the processing, and then we put them back in, and we put them back in in weird fashions. It probably means it doesn't really work that way. It probably only works if you eat food that's got all these things in in the proportion and the associations that we were designed to eat and you know when people say what, what should you eat i just say well you know eat something that looks like food and if you if it takes you more than two minutes to read the ingredients on the side of the packet throw it away because it's, it's not going to do you any good is it so i want to ask your opinion about a study that was published last week in jama a really prominent uh, u.s medical journal and uh, it was really popular in the media here i suspect it was on your side of the ocean also and that was a, the definitive study on eggs, finally, that excluded all these other variables and was able to show that for every 300 milligrams of cholesterol, dietary cholesterol, which is what about you get in one egg, your, it, your increase of heart disease or, or cardiovascular disease went up by 17 or 18%. And I've got my views, but I really am curious to hear what you're saying. Well, uh, the first thing is, you know, this is and when we're talking about uh, increase by 18 percent. All right. That's a relative increased risk, which is uh, I use I use a I have a, a, a personal philosophy, which is unless your hazard, what they call this hazard ratio, which is the thing they're talking about is increased by 17 percent. Unless your hazard ratio goes up by more than 200 percent in what they call an observational study. What you should do is you should take the study and you should grab it in both hands, crumple it up into a small ball, and you should throw it over your shoulder into the bin, because it's absolutely worthless. <laughs> and 
it wasn't me that came up with that figure. The, the, the person who, who worked to discover that smoking caused lung cancer, um, two people in, uh, in, in Britain, um, I, think, I think most people knew it already, but they, they kind of proved it. Um, so Richard Dole was one of them, and he um, and, and, uh, and Bernard Hill, um, who created this thing of cause, standards for causation. And they wrote papers saying, if you've got an observational study and your hazard ratio is not greater than two, you really can place no reliance on this whatsoever. There's so many variables that are going on. I mean, I looked, somebody sent me this study, and, and in this study, what they found was that people who had never smoked were more at risk of dying of heart disease than people who smoked. So when you look at a study that's finding results like this, you realize to yourself, this is just a nonsense study. It's, it's not even worth looking at. I have looked at it. Uh, it takes, as you may know, it takes a long time to, to go into studies like this and say, well, what did they do? What did they not do? What did they study? What didn't they study? How did they do this? And, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm giving a talk next week, actually, where I'm talking about doctoring data. And I just say, you know, how do you analyze a study? What do you do? What, what, do, you, what do you look for? So well, you, the first things you start looking for are, are A, you know, what's the difference we're looking at here? Could it be, could it be something else that's causing it? And, and really, when we're looking at hazard ratios of 1.17, really forget it. This is nonsense. The, the, the number of variables that could be causing this difference are enormous. And they didn't even account for most of the variables. I, I can't tell you how rubbish that study was because you have to go into the statistics and all the other things. But essentially, the finding was irrelevant and trivial. And just forget, but don't worry about it. Forget about it. It was Ansel Keys himself who started the entire diet art study nonsense, who fed volunteers up to 50 eggs a week, right? And what he found was he couldn't make any difference to their blood cholesterol level. And he came to the conclusion, and he is quoted, and I, I have this quote, I've written it down many times. Cholesterol in a diet makes no difference to you unless you are a chicken or a rabbit. And we are neither, we're human beings. Your body can deal with wide, wide variations in cholesterol intake. Your body produces about five grams, no it doesn't, yes it does, five grams of cholesterol a day. You can't get that in the diet unless you're at about 12 eggs. And the idea that the body can't cope with 300 grams of cholesterol and can't control that goes against all known concepts of homeostasis. We, you know, what happens if you eat more cholesterol? Your body produces less cholesterol because it doesn't need to anymore. Perhaps you could overwhelm it, but I have seen studies where people have tried to overwhelm. And what happens is that in the gut, there's a kind of shuttle system that once your cholesterol levels are full and you don't need any more, it doesn't absorb cholesterol anymore. It just shuttles it back out again. So it just goes straight through you and out the other end. Your body can control these things. And the idea that some minute amount of added cholesterol is going to overwhelm your, your control systems, is, it just goes against all known human physiology. It's just complete nonsense. So that's what I think about it. Well, thank you for sharing your insights on that. And the fact that one out of four adult Americans over the age of 40 is on, is currently taking a statin is something I call TOS or tragic on steroids. I mean, they've been able to convince and manipulate and deceive a massive millions, tens of millions of people who into taking these drugs. No, I know. 
Well, it's it's an idea. Um, I think it was uh, one of your one of your journalists, uh, Joe Menken, who said, you know, for every complex solution, there's an idea that's simple, easy to understand, and wrong. And this is the cholesterol hypothesis. It's simple. It's easy to understand. Anyone can understand it. As I say, a five-year-old can understand it, which is why it shouldn't really be believed. It's just wrong. You know? And when you look at it, when you look at, well, what's supposed to happen? How is this supposed to cause heart disease? It just starts to turn into mush in front of your eyes. You know, I mean, it took me quite a long time to work out it was rubbish. I, I've looked at this for many, many years. I realized the dietary part was nonsense pretty quickly because it just couldn't make any sense. Took me a while to get rid of the raised cholesterol bit because, well, you get cholesterol in your arteries and cholesterol in your blood and da 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 da. All sort of makes kind of sense if you don't think about it too deeply. Once you start looking at it, you think this is just preposterous. It, well, what's confusing is the cholesterol in the plaque too. Oh yeah, well, well I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you an interesting thing about cholesterol in the plaque because it was first noted by Rudolf Virchow in 1852. Um, he saw cholesterol. What he saw was cholesterol crystals in the plaque. Because you couldn't see cholesterol at that time. They weren't sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Don't look at all that. That's cholesterol in the plaque. That's interesting. Now, the cholesterol crystal is an interesting thing. Is cholesterol crystal, you can't get a cholesterol crystal from the cholesterol that's carried around an LDL. Because the cholesterol that's carried around an LDL is what we call a cholesterol ester. It's a cholesterol attached to a fatty acid. Two molecules stuck together. That's what they call a cholesterol ester. You can't make a crystal from that. And in fact, I've been reading papers recently that have, have agreed with this. So cholesterol crystal can't come from LDL. So where does it come from? The only place you can get a cholesterol crystal from in the body is from the membranes of red blood cells. Because the membrane of a red blood cell contains more free cholesterol than anything else in the body. And it's the only place you can make a thing you can make a crystal from. So if you want to say, where does a crystal, cholesterol crystal come from? Where does the cholesterol come from? Well, it comes from red blood cells. Where do red blood cells come from? Well, they've got nothing to do with LDL. We know that. And the other interesting fact is that when we find things that look like LDL, they are almost certainly not LDL. They're almost certainly another lipoprotein called LPA, lipoprotein A. Because lipoprotein A and LDL are exactly the same thing, except LPA has another protein attached to it called apolipoprotein A, stuck to it, and it floats around in the body. And no one, everyone, everyone says we don't know what it does, but we know what it does. Because apolipoprotein A is identical in structure apart from one amino acid to plasminogen. And plasminogen, which most people don't know, is a thing incorporated into all blood clots as they form. And plasminogen can be turned into plasmin by tissue plasminogen activator, and that's what splits clots apart. However, if you have a clot with LPA in it, with apolipoprotein A in it, the plasminogen activator cannot work, and that clot cannot be broken apart and remains stuck where it is. Therefore, when you have LPA involved in your arterial damage, then you get a blood clot, you get LPA, you get red blood cells, and then you have a blood clot attached to the side of your blood vessel. So you have red blood cells, you have LPA, you have almost everything actually. You have a lot of these things. And then you're left with a situation of, well, what, what do you do with this blood clot? What does the body do with it? Well, it can't fall off and travel down the artery, which just block the artery further down. 
what the body does with it is it shaves it off. And then when it shaved it down, new endothelial cells floating around in the blood cover it over. So you then have a blood clot lying underneath a new layer of endothelium. And that blood clot is the formation, the direct result of that is that over time, if it keeps happening on that spot over and over again, that becomes a plaque containing cholesterol crystals, things that look like LDL, LPA, and everything else. And when people say, what about oxidized LDL? I say to them, where do you think the oxidization, the oxidation of LDL occurs? It occurs inside the artery wall, because that's the body trying to get rid of it. Because the first thing that the white blood cell does, the macrophage does when it comes across alien material is it hits it with a superoxide burst. A superoxide burst is nitric oxide. So it oxidizes it, then it engulfs it, then it gets rid of it. That's how the system works. So when you find oxidized LDL or oxidized anything inside a plaque, the oxidization is the body trying to keep well, it. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be superoxide? Because if it's going to oxidize it, it typically is through NADPH oxid, oxidase or NOx, which releases superoxide. Well, now, superoxide can combine with nitric oxide and form peroxynitrite, and that blasts it even more. Well, nitric oxide is what macrophages use. I, I, at least that's on everything that I've well, read. It's, but it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's a free radical, but it's not very oxidizing. Yeah. Typically, it's, it's more beneficial, especially, well, I, I don't know. Do macrophages make, I, did, is it made by Enos or Inos? It must be Inos. I think it's Inos. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't know how you tell at the different point of that. But um, I think that, well, to an extent, I mean, uh, obviously I'm, I'm throwing a few different concepts here at you rather quickly. But to an extent, um, we've looked at the whole process. And there have been people kicking around for hundreds of years who have always thought the cholesterol hypothesis was nonsense and have come up with different ideas, what's actually going on, what's actually causing heart disease. And, and yet we've, we can't move away from this cholesterol idea. It seems we're absolutely trapped with it. And, and as you say, we've managed to convince around the world hundreds of millions of people to take statins. And I'm not quite sure how we get away from this. I, I don't know how we move away from this. Well, spreading the truth. I, just a quick question on the, it was, thank you so much for that elegant description of what's happening because a lot of people get confused with it, but this ultimately it's LPA, which is a far more potent risk factor than LDL yes. uh, assessing that level. So if you have these high LPA essentially inactivates your own endogenous TPA, yeah. uh, the TPA, as many people may know, is what they give in the emergency rooms for people who have an acute heart attack or stroke if it's within a certain time frame, usually a few hours. So if they give it intravenously TPA, is it over, is it in, because they're giving it such massive doses, is, is it enough to, to bust through the clot? I think it is, yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, if you've got a, I mean, a large part of the clot, even if it's, if it's not got LPA in it, if it does block the artery completely, if you can blow that apart, then you're going to open up the artery again. Okay. So I think that, that, you know, it's, does it overwhelm? It probably does overwhelm the amount of, of LPA in there uh, and, and just blast the whole thing to pieces. But um, I assume that. I don't know if anyone's ever studied that. that, that would, that's a guess on my part, really. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been great. So are there any other pearls you'd like to share from us from your magnificent book? Well, I think that... Uh, 
as you as you probably uh, know, I mean, we're we're very much on the same line in, in many things. Mm -hmm. I think that the the one of the pearls that the strongest risk factor for dying from heart disease is actually um, mental stress, mental illness, mm. um, by a huge, a huge margin. You just uh, wrote a blog post on that. Well, I, yeah, I have done a blog post on that. And I, I think that, um, the, you know, I looked at, if you look at uh, populations that have suffered really, really badly from heart disease, they've tended to be uh, under a great deal of psychosocial, if that word means anything for sure, psychosocial stress. So I did point out the Australian Aboriginals whose culture and whose lifestyle has been obliterated. I mean, they, they do, don't eat very healthily and they smoke and they take drugs and they, they drink, but even taking all these things aside, that an average Aboriginal woman, uh, Australian Aboriginal woman will have a rate of heart disease, which is, which is a thousand times, a thousand percent that of the surrounding population. So I think um, when we're looking at uh, heart disease, I think we have to look at, at mental, um, mental effects as well. Um, things like friendships, things like having a sense of purpose, things like having good family around you are hugely important. And, and I think mainstream medicine has gone off and sort of ignored this really. It's just a drug fest. But I think that the mental and physical health, which I know that's something you promote and promote, is, is just absolutely critical to what you call true health, proper health, not not health coming out of tablets and pills, which is just just not the right not the right way of getting people back on track. So that would be my. I don't know if that's a pearl, but <laughs> well, a subset of that too would be social community. Uh, and the fact that uh, I think there's been some studies that point out pretty clearly that loneliness is another major factor, and it's really sort of a subset of social stress, psychosocial stress. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think they've noted recently even, even politicians have noticed that, especially for elderly people, lack of social interaction, loneliness is, 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 is deadly. Um, and, and I think, you know, they call these the diseases of civilization, aren't they? Cancer and heart disease, they used to be called, but I think I think in many ways they are because we live so differently than we used to. And it's a combination of all these things of not moving, not eating what we used to, not having the social interactions that we did and people become isolated. It is a terrible kind of series of things that when you add them one on top of the other, people find difficult to, 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 to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Yes, well. Uh, thank you so much for your time and writing the book. The book, again, the name is A Staten nation and it should be coming out very shortly uh if you're uh, i think we'll put a link to it on the site because there's actually another book that's called staten nation which was written prior to yours i know, I know. so you have yeah, to be well, careful and pick the right one yeah just in uh, yes um i didn't want to call it a staten nation but the publishers insisted and they they wouldn't let yeah. me call it anything else so there we are but um so that's in a way a shame but um yeah a staten nation thanks very yeah. much and what we can yeah, well you, you've got my very first book in 2004, literally 15 years ago, was the No Grain Diet, and uh, and that was get that was a name dictated by the publisher, and I was so annoyed for many many years about it because I didn't necessarily believe that at the time, but now I've come full circle and I think, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm so glad it has a name. So maybe in another 10 years, you'll be just delighted with that. Delighted with that name, yeah. Well, maybe you never know. <laughs>
<laughs> well, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your common sense wisdom, basic rational approach and helping us decipher these complex uh, manipulations that industry uses to deceive us and, and really convince you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world to go on these dangerous medications that don't do a darn thing to improve their long-term risk of dying from the disease they're prescribed no. for. So, no. I know. Well, thank you, Joe. That's great. Hope, hope people have got something from it. <laughs> okay. Cheers.